We're starting this morning a book study of the book of Malachi. And uh, Malachi, other than some, some people that we all know and love, is an Old Testament minor prophet, right? And something you want to think about with Malachi as we get into it this morning is uh, Malachi is kind of famous among Christianity, I would say famous among Christianity, for being the last book before the first book of the New Testament, right? I was talking to a friend, and they, they said of Malachi, uh, he's the last one who spoke before the great silence. That's another way he's known, because God stopped speaking after Malachi. And uh, I don't know if, what you think that means, but if the last guy talking for God quit talking, you might want to go back and review your notes about what he said, right? Like, well, wait, well, wait we thought there'd be another prophet, and that's it. Malachi is the last one. And so we're going to talk about Malachi and, and um, his message. As a matter of fact, um, as we get into the word this morning, uh, Malachi means my messenger. It's, they're not sure it's a name. It's just a title. It it's comes in verse 1. We'll talk about that in a minute. But it's Malachi, my messenger. And one more thing I want to say before we jump into the text. We're going to pray like we always do. But, uh, I, you know, I, learned, I love to be able to preach because I learn so much. Let this be a plug, by the way. If you ever get a chance to teach... You will learn so much more in teaching than just in, in being a, a student, right? So if you get a chance, you might think, Bill, I'm not qualified to teach. Awesome. Then you should teach. Because you will learn so much if you, if you would step up and, and do that. And I get the blessing of doing that often. But Malachi was a contemporary of Ezra. Again, a name of an Old Testament prophet and also a dear friend of ours, <laughs> right? Uh, and um, Nehemiah. And almost all of us probably know Nehemiah's story of the rebuilding of Jerusalem, right? And he, he saw God's people were in shambles. And he said, this is not acceptable. And he, he rallied the people of God to rebuild and to, you know, um, just do some great work in God's name. But uh, Malachi was probably contemporary of those other two prophets. He was probably speaking right after them. So this is like things are restored and here's an opportunity. And let's remember what we're here for. And uh, it's a great reminder for us uh, today. And so we're going to talk about Malachi and what he has to say to us this morning. Yeah, we'll jump in, right? We'll stop right there and we'll jump in then. So let's pray. We're going to ask God's wisdom this morning. I don't know what's going on in your life that brings you here. Our prayer is that whatever's happening, that this space is a sanctuary for us to hear from God, that all of us would be able to sit at his feet and listen and learn, right? And we're going to invite him to teach us. The power of God, the Holy Spirit of God, about Jesus Christ, because of the love of the Father. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much to be um, able to be in your presence, gathered as your people. One of the things that we do, Father, just to seek you out, is to come together with other people who believe you and want to hear from you. And so, Father, this morning as we gather together, we know that your promise says you're with us, that you will not abandon us or forsake us, that you're going to show up and you're going to love us and teach us. And so this morning we ask that whatever's going on in our life, and we've got a lot going on, Father, that we could set it aside to just to hear from you. And that somehow, by your miracle of grace, we might learn more about who you are and who we are in you. About our lives, about our very lives, and what a, what a miraculous thing that we could ask for. That you would know us so intimately, you could teach us this morning the very thing we need to hear. So would you do that work for your glory and our good? Uh, we claim no wisdom of our own. Lord, you are the author of all wisdom, and uh, we have it by your grace. And so would you be our teacher this morning. We love you so much. Open our minds uh, to understand. Open our hearts to believe and, and help us to live. Live out your word going forward. We pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Awesome. So I already warned you, you're going to want to get a Bible. Hopefully you have one. If you don't, I can't push slides anymore for some reason. Um, we're going to go one more there. Maybe my battery's dying. Cool. Malachi 1, 669. If you use one of our Bibles, it's going to be 669. If you got your own, it probably won't be 669, uh, but you can look it up. Again, if you get to the New, this is one of those easy books to find, because if you're in the New Testament, you're too far, and if you're in the Old Testament, it's not Malachi, you're too far back, <laughs> right? I love these kind of things, y'all, because it's hard sometimes finding a, you know the kind of pressure you're under trying to find a book of the Bible when you're a pastor? There's a lot of pressure. Malachi, praise the Lord, into the Old Testament. All right, we're going to actually look at uh, verse 1, chapter 1. Uh, an oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I already told you that the word Malachi means through my messenger, right? But this is a word from the Lord, uh, Yahweh, um, to Israel, right? And so that's important to keep in mind. This is, a, this is a, something that he was uh, sharing. And then we're going to jump right in here. Verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was Esau not Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his mountains into a wasteland, and I have left his inheritance to the desert jackals. I'm going to stop here for a minute and talk a little about this book. I probably should have warned you before we got in. This is kind of a hard book. This is a hard book because God's going to say some really serious things to his people. And, and again, I, I said, this is the last word of the Lord to Israel. They had to back up the tape and say, what did he say again? Because these are some hard teachings. Another thing that's interesting about the book of Malachi is it's taught in a, what's called a didactic style. I think that's right. But it's where the, the, the teacher asks a question and then answers the question for the student. And so you'll see it right away in verse 2 there. I have loved you, God says. That's his first word to his people in this book. I have loved you. But then if you look at the question, but you ask, how have you loved us? That's an interesting thing to say in a didactic style. Because first of all, God's making a claim that God has loved us. And that's actually our first uh, fill in the blank. God has loved us. And the first thing he wants Israel to know is that he has loved them. Now what's crazy is if you've read the Old Testament, you've probably heard the stories about how God has repeatedly rescued them from the hands of their enemies and from uh, certain destruction and from famine and from sword and everything else. And yet, here's God at the end of his time with Israel in this way saying, I've loved you, but you ask, how have you loved us? I think that's really interesting that he would ask that question because it seems to imply, and I want you to hear this this morning, that the people of God believed that he did not love them. How have you loved us, you ask? Right? There, that's, that's why I call this one doubters doubt. Like, when, when we begin to believe that God really hasn't loved us, and that seems to be partly where Israel is here, that they have believed that the God of their youth, that the God of their ancestors, the God of their forefathers has not loved them. By the way, there's eight of these didactic questions in this text, in the, in the book. And you can read this book, I mean, in like 10 minutes. It's like four chapters, super fast, maybe 15. But you can read it super fast. So 
God says, how have you loved us? Now, here's, here's the hard teaching then. God gets right into it. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? The Lord says, Yahweh says. And then he says this, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I hated. Now, I'm going to spend just a, a, a good portion of our time this morning talking about this revelation about how God loves his people, right? I don't know if you guys remember the story of Jacob and Esau, but I want to tell you a little bit of the backstory because this is an interesting thing for God to say, Israel, this is how you know that I've loved you because was Esau not Jacob's brother, and did I not love Jacob but hate Esau? There's not very many times in Scripture that you hear God say he hates things or hates someone right? And so that's, that's pretty uncomfortable right away for me. I'm like, oh, wait, what? You know, God loves everybody, right? But he says, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. And it's like, well, what does that mean then? So I want to kind of look at God's response to the answer. How, have, how has he loved us? This is what, this is the backstory on Jacob and Esau. But in case you forgot, maybe we can dust up together here. How did he love uh, Jacob? He loved Jacob because Jacob became Israel, Remember the story, right? He was wrestling, and he's like, I'm not going to let go until you give me a blessing. And then, and then uh, when Jacob, and I love this story. We can't get into this morning. But when Jacob finally admits who he is, God changes him. If you've not caught that in that text, I'd encourage you to read it. But basically, Jacob's wrestling with God, and it's not until Jacob can be honest about who he is and all his faults and failures that God finally blesses Jacob and converts him or changes him into Israel. So, that's one way that God has loved Jacob, specifically, by making him Israel. But let's talk about the story then. Esau and Jacob were twins. Now, we know that's true, but I have a tendency to forget. Because Esau is repeatedly referred as the older. And every time in my mind, I think of Esau, I think of the big brother. <laughs> you know? I mean, I think of the big brother that you don't want to have as a big brother. The one you're never going to live up to, the big brother, right? The one, I mean, if you think about who Esau is in the scripture, um, his name actually comes from the idea of being red, and it's because he's a redhead, right? So a little kindred spirit there. But uh, that he was hairy at birth. He was so hairy at birth, they called him Esau because he was like a red ball of hair, right? Um, he was the firstborn. Uh, he was born of Isaac and Rebekah, and he's the grandchild of Abraham and Sarah. So when Israel says Father Abraham, they're talking about the grandparent of Jacob or of uh, Esau. And so um, he's the older twin, though. And that's easy for me to forget because I always think about Esau being so much older than Jacob, like Jacob the younger, Esau the older, right? So that's a bit of Jacob's backstory, or Esau's backstory. Here's another thing. Uh, and I have mad respect for this, but Jacob is a hunter-gatherer type. I mean, he's accomplished. I mean, he gets stuff done. You know, you had that, like, oldest son thing, where they're always, like, that, their oldest child thing, not even son, but child, where they're always performing, performing, performing. They grow up in an adult world, right? They got little kids, sisters, and brothers, you know what I mean? And they're proving to everyone that they are on top of it. I got this. I got it, right? And so this is um, Esau. He is a man of the outdoors. He loves to be out and, and just kind of runs wild. You can feel, if you read the story, you can feel the visceral nature of who Esau is. Well, then, that's Esau. Who, who's Jacob? Well, Jacob's the second born. And again, by what? Minutes? Seconds? 
I mean, this is like the closest thing to a big brother, little brother can be. <laughs> you know, like, it's like getting that close to the end of the race, and he just, he got you, right? As a matter of fact, we know the story about um, Jacob. Jacob actually grabbed uh, Esau's heel as he was born. Like, he was like, I'm, ah! almost like he was trying to drag him. I'm going to get out before you. Like, I'm going to be the big brother. This is Jacob. But he's not. He's the younger twin. Uh, Jacob is shy or simple. There's a funny interpretation of his name, though. Relatively perfect. Relatively perfect compared to who? M maybe Esau? <laughs> uh, you, you, you get the idea from that name, like the favored son, you know? Oh, wait, wait. Jacob is a mama's boy. Like, he's literally a mama's boy. If you've not read the story, you should read it. Because we pick on mama's boys. But Jacob's a mama's boy in the, in the story. His mom repeatedly bails him out of stuff. He, she repeatedly tells him how to get around the situation that he's not going to be able to do on his own. This is Jacob. Oh, Jacob is a cheat. The heel-grabbing thing was like a, a foretelling of who he's going to be. He's always trying to trip somebody up to get ahead of him. He's always trying to figure a way around the rules. He's always trying to find a way to swindle people, a way to trick them. And you think, I, that's, that, see that to me, if I was writing the story, that's not how I write that story. I write that story that Esau has accomplished. And poor Jacob, little brother, never made good, Right? Well, what's the difference then? Because I want to remind you again when we're talking about Jacob and Esau. He said, yet I have loved Jacob, in verse 2, but Esau I have hated. And, and so what's the deal? Why is God going to love one and hate the other? What is going on in, with Jacob and Esau? Well, you, another part of the story you might remember is that Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. I think it was called lentils right? That he sold everything he had coming from his father, an inheritance, because he was hungry. This idea that, uh, um, what I get from this is that he had this immediate gratification. I need to be satisfied right now. I, I, can't, I can't think beyond the moment, right? Again, that kind of impulsive person. And he comes home, and in a, in a fit, almost in an unthinking fit is how it comes off. He says, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jacob's like, I'll sell... I if you give me your inheritance, you give me your, the rights to the firstborn, I'll give you a bowl of soup. You go, what kind of deal is that, right? But that's what he offers. And in that moment, uh, Esau, in his weaknesses, yeah, let's, I'll do that. But what's the other side of that then? What's the difference between Jacob and Esau? Because Jacob stole the birthright from his brother, right? He literally tricked his brother. He knew. He knew. He's going to get home. He's going to want the soup. When he gets here, I'm going to say, hey, you want this soup? I'll trade you. I'll trade you for it. And he manipulates him into doing it. See, this is child's play. This child's play, right? Like, what, what could that matter that, that you have uh, one brother who doesn't appreciate the gravity of what he's trading away and another brother who wants something that he can't ever have? He can't ever have it unless he steals it. Child's play. Until later, when Esau is out hunting, and his dad is dying. And his dad says, bring Esau to me that I might bless him. And then Jacob and Jacob's mama go into overdrive. And they're like, you got to get this blessing, right? And Jacob's like, well, I already stole it from him. I should have it anyway. 
and they do the whole goat skin thing on his arms because that's how hairy Esau is. What do you think about goat skin for a minute? How hairy that man must have been. And the story goes that as Isaac rubs, he's like, ah, yes, my son Esau, you know. <laughs> you hairy, hairy man. And you know what else that means? Underneath that, he was probably butter smooth, <laughs> you know. I mean, just think about receiving a blessing like that. Like, it's what I always want to hear from my dad. It's what I always want is the blessing. I always wanted him to treat me like Esau. And here I am. I'm going to get it. I'm going to get the blessing. And he does. As he blesses him. Well, Esau comes back and he's upset about this, right? And he says, uh, undo it, undo it, undo it. I'm here. I, he was lying. He was lying. It wasn't, I was out hunting for your food. And Isaac says something remarkable. This is what he says. I can't undo it. I had one blessing to give, and I gave it. That's it, right? There's a bit of a backstory here that God had always said that the older would serve the younger in their lives. But here has, has, had come to fruition in this moment of cheating and swindling and lying, deceiving. You can almost sense the grief of the father who's done something that's un undoable. This is the only way that I've, I can do this now is for Jacob to be our inheritor. And so, uh, so we have that where, where he has this uh, birthright. Well, guess what happens then? And one more thing, and we're going to get out of the story because I know we're way deep off the trail here of Malachi, but I think it's important. So at that moment, Esau just is angry. And see, you, you can really think, boy, that's unfair what God did, what, what, what Rebecca did, and what uh, uh, Jacob did with Esau, until you see what comes out of Esau in that moment, and it's just rage. It's rage to the point of the very first sin, I'm going to kill my brother. I'm going to kill my twin brother. And this isn't like the joking running around the house, throwing chairs, kind of kill your brother, you know, until your mind is shit, snatches up. Stop it, you two. Like this dude is a warrior and he's going to kill his little soft-skinned brother. And he decides he's going to do that. And what has to happen at that point is Jacob has to run for his life. He has to flee from his brother. You remember later on, he has to kind of, he timidly goes back when they reconcile. He timidly goes back because he's so afraid when I finally see him, he's going to kill me. He's going to take my life. So what does all that have to say about what God is, why God would love Jacob and hate Esau? And this is a hard thing. But we, we get an explanation for it in Romans 9. It says that God saved Jacob because of God's own mercy and compassion. It's because he chose to save Jacob. Now you go, well, that's not fair, right? What about Esau? Esau, it seems, was rejecting anything that was appropriate. But we can't exactly blame Esau because the truth is this. Jacob, the cheater, the swindler, deserved to be cut off too. It wasn't so much how did he reject Esau. It's how did he not reject Jacob. But you see, God had made a promise to Abraham and a promise to Isaac. and He was going to keep it. 
And so because of his own compassion and mercy, because God saves who he wants to save, because God elects who he wants to elect, God chose Jacob. As a matter of fact, I told you earlier that Jacob is wrestling with God, right? And again, you can read that story however you want. But he has sent everyone across before him until he's all alone. And you can imagine, he's in the rear of this whole party. He's supposed to be leading these people, and he's in the back. And he's, then that's when God confronts him again. Who are you? Who are are you going to be? And Jacob, this, this kind of timid, shy, weak, soft-skinned creation of God, has to admit, I am Jacob. I'm not Esau. And I'm weak. I'm not strong. And I'm broken. And I'm a cheater. And I'm a swindler. I'm not good. And when he says, he didn't say all that. He says, I'm Jacob. But it kind of all rolls in that package, you know. That's the moment where God says, and I will make you Israel. And he blesses him. He changes him. And it's, and it's everything after that. So, why does he say all this here? Look at what's said. Verse 4. Edom may say, who's Edom? Edom is Esau's lineage. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we'll rebuild our ruins. Like, we're going to manifest our strength. We're going to fight this cutting off from God. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. I want you to notice the word Almighty there, by the way. You know, we can read over that and go, the Lord says, the Lord Almighty says. But the Lord Almighty there means the Lord of hosts. And hosts is kind of a weird term, but it means the Lord of the army. This is a, a show of strength here. When it says, the Lord Almighty says, it's my power, my ability. I command angels and legions. I command, you know, a complete army that does what I want. And the Lord of the army says, they may build, but I will demolish. Listen to me. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of God. And you will see it with your own eyes, and you will say what? Great. That's terrifying. Fear-filled is the Lord Almighty. That's what you're going to say. Even beyond the, the borders of Israel, there's this reality. And we are not comfortable with the God who says, if I cut you off, you are cut off. If I cast you out, you are cast out. And no matter how many times you say, I'm going to do it again, I'm going to do it better, I'm going to figure out my way to do it, God says no. And here's, here's a really scary thing. God could be against you. And, and I'm not telling you, like, okay, God's for me and against you. I'm saying God could be against me. Or, or another way you could put it, that I could be against God. But listen, that's a crazy thing. Because it's not just that he had mercy on Jacob, but he didn't on Esau. He was against them. And here's the problem with this, that if in our lives we're living lives that we're living against God, we should not be surprised when he rebukes us repeatedly, knocks us down repeatedly, pushes us back, and, res and resists what we're trying, what we want to have happen. I see this so often in people's lives. We have, I think, to our detriment, we have soft-souled the true power and magnitude of the glory of God and who he is like we have somehow cut this into this like weak milk toast super safe God that we can control we can put him in our pocket pull him out what we want and he's lucky to have us but that ain't true we can be living lives that are uh, diametrically opposed to the God who made us you might say it's unfair to Esau but did not God make Esau? It's unfair to Jacob. But did God not make Jacob? And is it not God's promise? 
See, we have watered this down to this super safety God that has no sharp edges and nothing to be terrified of, but this is terrifying. And, and so, what's, what's the point? Like, well, what does it matter? Wake up. We got to wake up. We have to pay attention, and we need to seek God. Let me, let me say this a different way. How many of us, I mean us, for those who are believing in Christ, for those who are believing the gospel, they've come to believe that Jesus died for our sins, and we've come to believe that God raised him from the dead, and how many of us, in that state of things, believing the gospel, have begun to believe the lie that somehow Jesus hasn't loved us? Huh? Like, how many of us have lived lives as Christians and, and had some thought that somehow God hasn't loved us? After knowing what he did for us, after knowing that he offered Jesus Christ his son to be sacrificed so we might be free, we have the audacity to set with Israel, Israel who's been preserved by God after all this time, right, and say, how have you loved us exactly? What have you done for us lately? See, that's scary. This is that idea that we can just slide into this, this false belief. What's the big deal? What did God do? And that's a scary thing. The truth is, though, that God has loved us. And what a way to start the story. Because, listen, I said it's a, a word to Israel, right? Israel ought to remember <laughs> that God had loved Jacob. Israel ought to remember that God had hated his enemies. And this is a preferred position to be in in this life. So after this, what's next? Verse 6, God continues. A son honors his father, and a servant honors his master. If I am a father, then where is the honor due me? And if I am a master, where is the respect due me? Says, here it is again, notice the words, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the army. Why are you not respecting me, Israel? Why are you not honoring me? And this is the next thing we want to say, is that God is due honor. <laughs> He's due honor. Like a father or like a master, like a son, we should give honor to him. Or like a slave, we should give respect to him. He says, where is it? Where is it? It is you, O priest, who show contempt for my name, he says. Now again, these are people who ought to know, who ought to know. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? There's a second question. You place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, well, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. I want to talk about the word contemptible for a minute. It's, it's this idea that it's beneath our consideration. It's not worthy of our thought. It's, it's a secondary issue in this life. You'll remember that Israel had the sacrificial system. And this was the moment that you're appeasing God. You're bringing your, your best. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Your best into his house to offer him your best because he asks for it and he deserves it. And you're going to honor him in this way. But he says, no, you've had contempt for my table. You thought it not worth even thinking about. Verse 8, when you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong of you? Or, or when you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong of you? Try offering those to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? And that's like your boss, your ruler, right? Your president, the, the CEO of your company. 
Try bringing your second best to one of them and see how they would treat you for it. What do they expect for you? What do they expect from you when they when they're put you in their employment, when they hire you onto the team? Would that be acceptable? There it is again. Says the Lord of hosts. Is this what I've come to expect from you? That you don't even think I'm worthy to be considered in your life? That it's a secondary issue, eventually you'll get to it? Verse 9, now implore then God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts. Implore him to be graceful. Oh, that one of you, man, listen to the words here. This is crazy. Oh, that one of you would just close the temple doors so that you would not offer useless fires on my altar. Just stop. That's what the word says. Israel, we've always done this. We've always done, just stop it. Stop. Why even bring it in anymore? You don't mean it. You can sense I mean, the terror of, of hearing this as Israel. You're not pleased anymore. We've been doing this forever. We're repeating it. Our parents, our grandparents, we taught, they taught us to do this. And we're just doing what we're told to do. And you don't like it? He says this. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts. And I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations. From the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought in my name because my name, listen to the word again, will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. Like, you're taking this way too casually. Way too casually. But you profane what? It. What is it there? You profane what? The temple? No. You profane my name the one that will be known as being great among the nations, you profane my name by saying of the Lord's table, it is defiled or it is contemptible. It's not worth thinking about what God has asked of us. We ought to um, honor God. He is worthy. And you get a sense of like his magnitude, right? His glory. You can sense his righteous indignation with his people. And again, I must say, and if you're feeling it, I'm feeling it with you, I would be like, Ooh, stop, 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 stop. How did we get here? How did I get here? Where I, I don't have any respect for you anymore. Listen, how many of us have more respect for the world than we do for God? How many of us are more afraid, and I'm saying us, church, how many of us are more afraid of what people will say or think of us than we do of the Lord God of hosts, the one who made us, the one who commands angels and armies? Like, how many of us are more afraid of our peer group than the God who knows us, who saves us? He's due honor. He's due respect. And, and we ought to have that for him. My name will be great among the nations, and Everyone will know I'm great. Verse 12, but you profane it by saying the Lord's table is defiled, the Lord's food, it's contemptible, it's, it's, it's not worth thinking about. And you say, and here's the next point, and you say, what a burden. And you sniff contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. You say, ah, this is such a drag, man, being a child of God. 
This is so discouraging. I have just had enough of being Israel. I've had enough of your blessings. I've had enough of all of your mercy and grace through all these years. And, and you just dismiss it. And that's our next point, is that faith is not a burden. I can't push the slide. You can push it for me. That'd be cool. Faith is not a burden. Listen to me, church. Salvation is not a burden. Believing is not a burden. I mean, that the lost would have such a problem to go, oh my goodness, I've been saved and now I have to believe in the God who made me my whole life. But often, how often do we find ourselves there going, what a drag. How about you? I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm sorry, you're what? I'm a Christian. Oh, you're, you're one of those Christians? Yeah. Uh, sorry. See what it says? You offer contempt. You, you're snide in contempt toward my altar, and you say, what a burden it is to us. Faith is not a burden. Esau, in his response, was like, if I could do it over, if I could do it over, I would want it different. So often we, we flip it around and we say, it's a burden to be a believer. Listen to me. It's a blessing. You've been blessed. You know why? I got news for you. Right now, if you're in this room and you believe the gospel, you don't deserve it. Right now, if I'm in this room, I don't deserve it. Like, I did nothing to earn God's favor. I didn't answer the right prayer. I didn't say the right question. I didn't answer the right question. I didn't say the right prayer. I didn't do the right thing. In his mercy and compassion, he saved us. So we're saved. And we walk around with our heads down, our shoulders slumped, and we go, what a drag. What? We forget. We forget what we've been rescued from. Salvation is not a burden. Faith is not a burden. Believing is not a burden. Wrapping up here. 13, you say, what a burden. You sniff at me contemptuously. When you bring injured or crippled or diseased animals and you offer them as sacrifices, here's the question. Should I accept them from your hands? Says the Lord. Verse 14, cursed is the cheat who brings who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. This is our next point, is that God will not be cheated. Oh, we push two there, Drew. You're on it. There we go. God won't be cheated. I want you to notice something about what the word says there. It says, Cursed is the man who has an acceptable lamb. Has an acceptable lamb, but then offers some weak, frail, broken lamb instead that, that person's cursed cut off right there's a couple of things we have to notice first of all that they've been given provision for what would please god that in the flock somewhere if they look long enough if they go through everyone can you imagine really going through your flock for the best for god that you go through each one you go through and you go oh, this man this one's the one you can tell like that's if, if your friends saw you and you were a shepherd they go man you're blessed because you got a sheep like that like it's it's a blue ribbon sheep like it's the one and you take that perfectly good sheep the one that there's nothing wrong with it all and you take it up to israel to the, the to jerusalem and you offer it as a sacrifice to the lord because you know how we are as people there's that gimpy lamb over there with that weird eye it's 
been looking at me funny. I don't even like that guy. I got to go to temple anyway. This is going to give me a prize. I have to take this one instead. You take that sad, but that you're like, this is mercy. It's going to put him out of his misery anyway, right? And you offer. But what's the problem? You're forgetting who you're standing in front of. You're looking at it from a human perspective. Two birds, one stone. Get rid of the gimpy one. Keep the really good one. Win-win, right? No. Lose-lose. Because you've forgotten. You're standing in front of the holy God that knows everything in your flock. He knows everything he's given you. And therefore, when he condemns you for bringing the really bad lamb in, he's right in condemnation because you put that good one aside. The other thing he says, what? And promise to give it. You promise to give it. And you bring in that gimpy one instead. God says, I am not pleased with your sacrifice. I'm not pleased with your sacrifice. See, so often in our lives, we offer God less than our best. We bring in the broken stuff, and we go, you can have this part, but not the good stuff. We're not going to bring all of our best into you, right? But I want to shift the whole thing here for you. Because unless you think, man, this is bad. It is bad, church. It's bad. (laughs) That when you're looking through your gimpy flock, you know, there's no lamb like Jesus. There's no lamb like Jesus. I mean, this whole thing, stop your sacrifice. Did you just close the door? This is interesting. Right before God stops talking, just close the temple down. Because none of this is pleasing to me. That we would offer our best effort. We would put on our Sunday best. We would show up and go, ah, today I'm going to please God by my effort. Whenever he has given his son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, to be a sacrifice for our sin. And we're going to show up with our rags, our brokenness, our blindness. And we're going to say, well, here it is. I did my best. It's not about your best. I offered you. What did you have available to me? What, what was in your flock? What was in your realm? It was Christ. And you said, no, no, not for me. And you go your own way. See, God won't be cheated. He will be satisfied. And listen to me, he will be right in judgment. We forget this very simple truth. This feel like sometimes the longer we go in our Christian walk, we forget the simple truth that Christ has done everything, that God has done everything in Jesus Christ. That the sacrifice is complete. That our sin is covered. And that we are born again and we are his people. Listen to me. It's like Jacob putting that goat skin on. Right? And God just reached it. You go, man, no. No, I don't want to be, yes, right? My son, whom I love, and whom I'm well pleased. That's the gospel. That we stand under this covering of Christ, you know, that he is the one who gave himself willingly. We could be free because we had no right to this inheritance. Cheats and swindlers all, but Christ saves us. And then the last thing he says here in chapter 1. Don't bring your blemished animals in to the Lord because I am a great king. And that's our last point, that God is a great king. I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. This, This idea that we have this kind of 
milquetoast approach to the greatness, the glory of God is um, unacceptable. Unacceptable. And so uh, we have offered in Christ. Now, you might be here today and you're like, you know what though, man, I've heard all this stuff before and uh, I get it. But do we live like that? See, here's the hard thing about doing this, man. It's all week, there's just God going, mm, what are you bringing? What do you hope and pleases me? You know, what do you think is good enough for me? If you're not relying on Jesus Christ alone for salvation, if you don't think that the sacrifice that I made for you, Bill Dempsey, is enough, what more are you going to bring to me? Of course he's enough. And maybe you're like, yeah, but I'm going to do really good. I'm going to do really good, and then God's going to finally see me for who I am. And I'm afraid that that's not, that that's actually true. He's going to see you for who we are, which is fallen, broken, weak, and incapable. We need his mercy and grace. just want to guard against that tendency we have to believe lies that God has stopped loving us or that Christianity is a burden to us. It's not true. It's a great blessing. I'm going to pray. I don't know what God's doing in your life, and maybe there's some things that this woke in you. Maybe there's some things where you've been kind of needled a little bit, needled, you know, um, that God would heal you in those areas. But not the milk toast God, not the safe God, the God that really shows up and does real work in our lives. I, I do not want for anyone in this room for God to be against us. <laughs> and so we're going to lay it all down and just be with God through Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask you to pray with me if you would. Pray. Father God, we thank you so much that we are um, to able to be able to talk to you right now and to be in your presence and honestly a bit overwhelmed by the magnitude and your glory. Father, forgive us, and I'm not asking as a command, I'm asking in your mercy, forgive us for the ways that we've taken you for granted in this life. Father, would you forgive us for the times where though we be redeemed in the name of Jesus, we're ashamed. Though we have the opportunity to proclaim and profess our faith, we shrink back. The Lord, we stand before you every day and every night. Indeed, you know every single thing you've entrusted to our care, and yet we're so hesitant to offer them back to you for your use. And Father, for all the ways that we've found, uh, we've sought out other avenues to please you, that we would stop and we would just stand in awe of what you've done through Jesus Christ. That we would believe that you are enough for us. That your salvation offered is enough. And that we would actually have peace with you. That we would stop wrestling against you and just believe you. Lord, help us to be people um, like Israel. Uh, for all the flaws saved. <laughs> for all the brokenness learning. Show us the way, Lord, in your great mercy. And then lastly, Father, no matter what comes, may you be feared among the nations. May we really, the whole planet, just stop in awe of you, respecting you for who you are. We love you so much. We thank you for the opportunity we have to gather together in your name, to be called your children, to be invited into your kingdom. I pray we don't squander the opportunity. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.